So this morning we start our Advent series, which is titled, God Spoke, the Messages of Advent. It's the time of year when we both remember and look forward to the coming of Christ. So we will be looking at God's messages to us in the coming of Christ. We're going to start off our series this morning with a message on Joseph and his dreams. It's a message of deliverance. It's a story that's found in the Gospel of Matthew. I'm sure it's very familiar. It's a, a um, passage that is often read at Christmas time. Our scripture this morning is often divided into two or three stories that are taught separately, but I'm convinced that this is all one story. It's intended to be read together. There's a re- the, the reason I think that is that there is a repeated cycle in each of the three episodes. So as we read this morning, look for three episodes and a repeating pattern. So let's read together. The birth of Jesus. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive And give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded, and he took Mary home as his wife, and she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So they got up 
took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where they stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under. After Herod had died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the reading of God's word. Please, would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your word to us. We would pray that you would use this passage to move our hearts, that your spirit would be at work within us, that we would hear the words here and apply them to our lives and follow you. And we pray in your name. Amen. As we get started right out of the box, I'm going to give you the sermon in a sentence. In the story of Joseph's dreams, we hear a message of deliverance by which God demonstrates his trustworthy character and Joseph displays the right response of a disciple to God's loving care. We're going to start by talking about baby names. Baby names. You know, it's an important decision, right? When a child is named by his or her parents, they make a big decision, one that will follow that child around all of the child's life. And many people think that the name that is chosen for a child by the parents reveals something of their personality or their character. I have it on no less than an authority that parent.com that this is true. And if there ever was a fount of wisdom, it's surely the website parent.com. If you choose, for instance, a family name for your child's name, it is likely that you are a somewhat sentimental person, right? If you choose a name that is old-fashioned, like Agnes or Jacob, and that's presently out of style, but you, you choose that name, it probably says that you are somewhat conservative, but not boring. If you give your child an unusual name, like Apple, I'm, I'm talking to you, Gwyneth Paltrow, or Moon Unit, like Frank Z- Frank Zappa, people know it, yeah. It probably means that you have something of a craving for attention. I'm not too sure of the psychology of this whole thing, but it is clear in our story this morning that God has very intentionally named this child with two names and that the names do reveal something about God and his gracious purposes. So the first name that this child receives is Jesus. It comes from two Hebrew words. The root words come together to form a name that means Jesus, or excuse me, God saves. And saves from what? 
Well, there are many causes of suffering that are part of the human condition. There's natural disaster, there's political turmoil, there is disease, there's poverty, inequality, and many others. And one day we understand that all of these things will be made right. But for now, God has sent his son to address the most important and terrible of these disorders, which is the problem of sin. He will save his people from their sins. This is God's plan of deliverance. The second name that the child is given is Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is God's second purpose in sending this child. God has taken on flesh and dwells among his people. But before these good and kind purposes can be realized, in fact, even before the child is born, there is a problem, a threat to God's purposes. So I mentioned earlier that I think that these are three episodes that tell together one story. And part of the reason I think that is that each element, each episode contains some common elements. So let's look at those for just a moment. In each episode, we see the same cycle, which goes like this. First of all, there is a, a problem or a threat, which may mean that God's purposes may not be accomplished. Secondly, there is a dream message, which is given to Joseph. Third, we see Joseph's obedience, and the threat is averted. And then we see a fulfillment of prophecy. So, as we start the first cycle, we see that the problem is that Joseph is questioning whether he should fulfill his marriage vow to the seemingly unfaithful Mary. Mary is pregnant before marriage, and Joseph is a righteous man who surely wants a faithful wife should he break the engagement. Then we see a message that Joseph receives in a dream. An angel comes to Joseph and says, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus. Then we see Joseph act in obedience. He did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife and she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. And then we read that all this took place to fulfill prophecy. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So these are words spoken by the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. In the second episode, we see the same sort of cycle. In this cycle... The problem was where, whether Joseph and Mary and Jesus could avoid the murderous rage of King Herod. Now, the first century Jewish historian Josephus wrote about Herod and his sons. Herod was appointed the governor of Israel by the Romans, and he had a long history of murdering anyone whom he thought to be a rival for the throne. For starters, he had his favorite wife, murdered, and two of his sons whom he thought were seeking to take over his kingship. And there was a long list of other people. And so there was a second dream message to Joseph. The Lord, knowing Herod's heart, sent an angel again to preserve the infant Jesus and his parents. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. 
Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Now, some of you, some of us, some of me, may look at these dream messages rather skeptically. Did this really happen? Does this happen today? And the answer is, well, yes, it does happen today. It's not much covered in mainstream media, but there is a movement to Christ all over the Muslim world today. There is a way of measuring a movement to Christ, which we'll talk about this morning, and that measurement is at least 100 new church starts or 1,000 baptisms over a two-decade period. Between the 7th century and the 18th century, a period of 1,200 years, there were no movements to Christ among Muslims. In the 19th century, there were two movements of Muslims to Christ. In the 20th century, a little momentum. There were 11 movements of Muslims to Christ. And now the startling news that in just the first 12 years of the 21st century, there have been 69 movements of Muslims to Christ. The best estimates are that these movements have brought someplace between 2 million and 7 million Muslims to faith in Christ in the years between 2000 and 2012. Now, that's a small number if you consider that there are 1.6 billion Muslims in the world, but nevertheless, this is significant, and imagine if this were to continue or even escalate over the remainder of our century. So how is this happening? Well, there are several factors at work and too many to go into, but one of those factors is that God is revealing himself to Muslims in dreams and visions. And Susan and I happen to have some personal background or knowledge of this. This is a photo of Susan with our friends Clody and Magena Lichai. They live in Albania. Clody is the pastor of the Disciples of Christ Church in Barat, Albania. They've stayed in our home while they've been in the United States, and we have been to their home in Barat for about three weeks a year ago spring. Clody grew up in an ethnically Muslim family in Albania, but he became a Christian in part through a dream. Clody is a reader. When he went into a bookstore in Albania, he picked up a copy of the Gospel of Luke, which was in Albanian and had been Uh, circulated in the country through Campus Crusade. And he took it home and read it and thought it was interesting, and he put it aside. Clody has lots of books, books all over his apartment. And for some reason, some, some time went by, and several months later, he had this strange compulsion that he needed to find that gospel of Luke and reread it. And so he did, and this time his heart was moved by what he read, and he accepted faith insofar as he knew how to do that after having only read one book of the Bible all by himself. And at the same time that he read this book and his heart was warmed, he prayed a prayer to God to help him grow as a believer. Four nights later, Clody was asleep and he had a vision. In his vision, he saw white clouds, and on those clouds was a throne, 
and on the throne was a king, and Clody knew that the king on the throne was Jesus. And he heard a voice, which Clody knew to be the voice of Jesus, and the voice said that Clody was a sinner and in need of forgiveness. And Clody says that he cried and asked for that forgiveness. Clody said, when I woke up, I understood that it was by his grace and forgiveness that I was saved and not because I was a good person, as I had thought. And this sort of thing is happening all over the Muslim world. So does this sort of vision that we see Joseph entertaining, does that happen today? Well, absolutely, it does. It's not typical, but it certainly happens in our world today. So we read again that Joseph was obedient. Joseph got up and took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. Herod did not know of the escape of Joseph and Mary and Jesus and was outraged when he learned that the Magi had left Israel without consulting him. And so to put an end to this perceived usurper, he had all of the children, all the boys under two years of age murdered. And we read that so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. This was spoken by the Old Testament prophet Hosea. The last problem was, will the child Jesus grow up in Israel safe from the cruel and mercurial Archelaus? After Herod died, the Romans appointed his son Archelaus to reign over the southern part of Israel. He proved just as cruel as his father, but not as smart, and in a few years, the Romans deposed him. Joseph was once more warned in a dream to avoid Archelaus in southern Israel, and once more, Joseph acted. He withdrew to the district of Galilee and went and lived in a town called Nazareth. Once again, Joseph was the means by which the threat to Jesus and his mission was addressed, and this also fulfilled prophecy. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, we've talked about this whole thing as if it were done in a laboratory. It's very clinical, isn't it? The story just read flatly. It sounds like it was in a Petri dish someplace, hermetically sealed, as if there's no human emotion to this. So I want to show you a few images that I hope will sort of remind us of what this was like. So these are several images of Syrian refugees, refugees who are fleeing from a man desperately seeking to cling to power. Sounds like our friend Herod, doesn't it? And many of us, I'm sure, have seen these images and have been moved by them. As a parent... I can't imagine what this would be like. Can you? To have to uproot your children, to leave country, leave home, and flee for some place for safety. The next image is a painting that hangs in the Louvre. It's titled, Rest on the Flight to Egypt. It was painted by a 16th century Italian painter named Orazio Gentileschi, and it's a representation of our scripture this morning. So the family, the holy family, hides behind a wall. Can you see the wall in the back? It's pretty dark. To keep them sheltered from the eyes of Herod and Herod's soldiers, Joseph is exhausted and asleep on the left side. That would be me. <laughs> Susan would be taking care of the baby. Mary is, of course, barefoot. She's walked. This is a trip of between 300 and 600 miles when you take the whole circuit into consideration, depending upon where they ended up in 
in Egypt. And in the center is the child Jesus who looks at us while we observe him. And he is naked, and he's utterly dependent on two very frail, very vulnerable, very fallible human parents. And we might wonder, would any father or mother subject voluntarily their child to this? And yet one father did this. And I'm not talking now about Joseph, the earthly father to Jesus. I'm talking about our heavenly father who sent his son into this kind of circumstance. Remember, the first great purpose of Jesus is to be God with us. And these photos and these paintings remind us that refugee status is part of the human condition. And when God sent his son to be with us as Emmanuel, he did not shelter him. The son experienced the whole of human life, even this most desperate of circumstances. The second great purpose of Jesus is also hinted at in this painting. You see the sky in the back? It's dark, it's ominous, it's overcast, and it reminds us that this child is safe for the moment, but one day he will die on a cross to save us from our sins to fulfill God's purpose of deliverance. This is the measure of God's love. I wouldn't do this. I doubt anyone here would but God did for us. So let's go back to Matthew and let's talk about the cycle. What was that all about? What is Matthew telling us? Why the cycle? So of course Matthew is telling us of the story of a child's infancy, but there is much more to what Matthew is trying to get across to us. Matthew is just opening his gospel and if we are reading this for the first time, one of the questions we wanna know is what is God like, right? Is he worth my time? Is he worth my attention? Might he be trustworthy? And so in this story, Matthew is introducing us to God. He's telling us of the character of God. So let's review the cycle for God's character. So first, we've seen the three problems that threaten the accomplishment of God's purposes. Will Joseph marry the seemingly unfaithful Mary? Will the Holy Family avoid the rage of Herod? And will the child Jesus be safe from Archelaus? God has foreseen each of these problems, right? In fact, he has foreseen everything that does happen and everything that may happen. Therefore, if we are gods, if we belong to him, we should never be afraid that God does not know our circumstances. He knows every sparrow that falls. He knows every hair on our heads. The psalmist tells us that he knows our hearts and therefore he knows the hearts of Herod and Archelaus and all around us. He knows all of our circumstances. He knows everything that may befall us. So therefore we can be safe in the hands of God because there is nothing that escapes his notice. Then there are the dream messages that come to Joseph. Take Mary as your wife. Leave for Egypt. Avoid Archelaus. Here we see that God is over all. He is sovereign. He has the means necessary to accomplish his purposes, and he will go to all lengths to make sure that those purposes are accomplished. God's arm is never too short. In Psalm 2, we read that God laughs at those who conspire against him. We are safe in God's hands, second, because he has the power to do what he wants. 
And then we learn that what has happened is the fulfillment of prophecy. What God says he will do, he will bring to pass. He is a promise-keeping God. So if our Lord says that he is with us, it is so. If our Lord says he will save us from our sins, he has done so. If he says that all things work together for good for those who love the Lord and who are called according to his purpose, we may not always understand it, but we can believe it. So in this story of the infancy of Jesus, Matthew is introducing us to the God who has good purposes for us, who is farsighted, who is powerful, and who keeps promises. Chip Dimitri sent me a quote this week. It's from Corey Ten Boom, World War II era Dutch Christian, who said this, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. This leads us to Joseph. We see Joseph's obedience then to this God as the right response to his trustworthy character. As I've prepared this message, I've come to appreciate Joseph. Joseph is all in, right? Whatever God wants Joseph to do, Joseph does. Joseph does two things really well. First, he listens to God. And secondly, he does the next thing. Think about how faithful Joseph is when he doesn't see the whole picture. Before I act, before I I do what God wants me to do, I generally want to know that things are going to turn out pretty well. Right? Not Joseph. He listens and he does the next thing without knowing everything that will be required of him. He gets just one piece of data at a time. Take Mary as your wife and name the baby Jesus. Okay. Go to Egypt. All right, we'll leave tonight. Go back to Israel, but avoid Jerusalem. I like small town life. Whatever it is, Joseph does it. Wouldn't you think that at some point Joseph would have smacked his head and said, please, Lord, no more dreams. But Joseph doesn't do that. Joseph always does the next thing, even though he doesn't know how the whole thing's going to work out. Last fall, Susan and I took a trip with our friends Mark and Nancy. We're old friends, I suppose, in both senses of the word. We're all believers, and so we got to talking, especially about our younger married life, you know, four, four old fogies sitting on the front porch talking about when we was youngins. And Susan reflected about the, uh, our children and, and how our children weren't like everybody else's children. By ages about four and seven, we knew that our children were different. First of all, they were not all that well-behaved. <laughs> By the time our daughter was three, she had kicked her Sunday school teacher in the shins. We didn't hear about it from him, but one of the other teachers, and so we had, have, had to have Libby bring a, a plate of cookies and an apology the next week. My son David was being watched by his father at some point in church, and the father blinked, and the son was in the men's lavatory, and there was this, in the urinal, this blue disinfecting liquid that was just fascinating, and and it was iridescent, and Phosphor, and there was nothing to do. You just the wall cried out for a mural (laughs) with 
the lavatory liquid. So we had to make some apologizing. But our kids were also different in some other ways. Our kids' motors did not run like everybody else's motors. Our kids had special needs. And the things that, was, that were working with our friends' children were not working for our children. And so there was nothing to do, really, but to do the next thing. And my wife was in constant contact with God. And he seemed to reveal to her just the next thing to do. We didn't know how our kids were going to turn out. Prison was a distinct possibility. (laughs) And yet, the Lord gave us just enough so that we could do the, the next thing with our children. God was faithful to us. Our friends Mark and Nancy had their own struggles. Nancy was a California girl. She married a boy from Minnesota, which was fine when it, things got started until the first winter came. And every morning was so dark and so cold, and she didn't know very many people. And it was all that she could do to make it through the first winter. She, she wanted so badly to head back to Santa Barbara, where there were 300 days of sunshine a year, And yet she knew what God wanted her to do, and she would stay one more day. It's 38 years later. They're still married. They still live in Minnesota, but Nancy has made it clear that if anything ever happens to Mark, she's heading back to California. (laughs) The Lord told her that she needed to stay in Minnesota, and so she did. There are times when God tells us just the next thing that we need to do. And all we can do sometimes is first listen to God. What does that look like? Well, it means having a regular time of Bible study and prayer when you listen for God's voice to you. And perhaps being in a group, a couple's group or a men's group or a women's group and hear what God is doing in the lives of other believers. So the first thing is listen to what God tells you to do. And the second thing is do the next thing. That God tells you to do. Most of us kind of know what that is, really, I think. So for some of it, some of us, it means staying in your marriage one more day when the sun is shining brighter someplace else. For some of us, it means doing the next thing for our children as we read our children. And it may be different than what somebody else has to do. For some of us, it means, I think this afternoon, going home and making a phone call to somebody who we have a ruptured relationship with, somebody we're estranged from, and that wall that's between us needs to be broken down. For some of us, it means going to work tomorrow to honor an employer who is not very honorable. So I want to leave you this morning with two questions. In a a minute, Sarah and our worship team are going to come forward, and they're going to play some walking music while I ask you to consider two questions. So the first one is, where do you need to listen to God? The second one is, where do you need to do the next thing that God has asked of you? Take a few minutes, if you will. Let, ask God to speak to you and let you know the answers to those two questions. I'm going to pray for us and then we'll look. So Lord, we thank you that you are a God who has good purposes for us that you are a God who is farsighted and powerful, that you keep your promises, and that you are therefore trustworthy. And we ask, Lord, that we would this morning know how
to listen to you and what is the next thing that you would have us do. And we pray in your name. Amen.